Hello, welcome to the latest National Governance Association podcast. Thanks for joining us. My name's Steve Edmonds and I'm NGA's Director of Advice and Guidance. Uh, and today I'm, I'm really pleased uh, that we have this opportunity to have a conversation on a topic that I know uh, resonates so much uh, with us in the governance community. And that's how uh, those governing use their role and influence to develop the people and the talent we have working in our schools and trusts. Um, and I'm joined by two people who know a, a lot about making schools great places to work and, and the most of those opportunities we have available through governance. So before we get into our conversation, uh, Mandy and Gareth, I'm, I'm going to let you introduce yourselves and tell the listeners a little bit about your backgrounds. So Mandy, let's start with you. Well, thank you, Steve. Great to be here. So, yes, I'm Mandy Coulter. Um, I'm the founder of an organisation called Talent Architects, and um, it's a really simple mission. I help schools across the country become great places to work. Um, I'm also the author of the book Talent Architects, How to Make Your School a Great Place to Work. Uh, My background actually is as an HR professional. Um, I've been working in HR for, oh gosh, nearly three decades now and 20 years as a a senior HR professional. Um, And I've had the benefit of working in a number of different sectors, um, usually working with sectors that are very, very people focused in delivery. Um, and are actually, you know, very focused in terms of purpose of what they do. Uh, but I've had the great pleasure for the last 10 years of working solely with the school sector. Um, I was director of people at United Learning, which is now one of the largest group of schools in the country um, and uh, saw through a huge growth period when I was at that trust. Um, I, I'm also very honoured to be a trustee um, of a local academy trust close to me. Um, and I'm also a trustee of the National Teaching Awards as well. Great. Gareth. Hi. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Steve. Uh, my name is Gareth Alcott. I've worked in uh, education for oh similar amount of time to Mandy, some time, shall we say, over 20 years. Um, I originally was a, an aerospace engineer, but I retrained uh, within the education sector. Uh, originally, I was a, a TA, and following being a TA, I re, uh, went back to university, studied to do a PGCE in middle years, middle years maths, worked abroad for a couple of years in an international school in Sri Lanka, and then returned, uh, starting as a teacher, classroom teacher, and then working up to being a head in primary school. Uh, after about 13 years, I moved to secondary, where I was an assistant head uh, who were forming a multi-academy trust. Um, part of that role also saw me leading uh, one of the largest teaching school alliances uh, in the country. I was um, director for PD, uh, supporting about 300 schools across Oxfordshire. And I also did a lot of work for the local authority at the time um, around recruitment. But as a result of my work as director, I started collaborating with the National College of Education. And a couple of years ago, I started working for them. National College of Education is um, an apprenticeship provider we provide bespoke apprenticeships for the education sector um, and having been a, a tutor for the, the previous two years on our level seven programs in september of last year i became the director of strategic partnerships so i'm delighted to be here looking forward to our conversation and i'm delighted to have to have you both with us and 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 to have this opportunity to have this conversa- conversation and, and especially because you are, I'll tell the listeners, you, you're both good friends to NGA. You've you, you both, you know, been real supporters of, 
of us. And uh, you've known for a while that we, we've been on this mission, really, to support governing boards as, as employers, uh, whether that's the way we you know, approach recruitment at all levels, uh, our, our relationship with our leaders, which is so such an important aspect of, of governance, you know, the progressive policies and practice that we need to encourage um, as the world of work changes, like flexible working, for example, and that's something you're very passionate about, Mandy, and and well-being, of course, we can't we can't ignore just um, how important it is to look after the people who who have done so much on behalf of others, particularly over the last couple of years uh, with, with the pandemic. You know, the, the schools and those working in schools have been such a vital component in in our national efforts to get over this dreadful period and um you know i think it constantly amazes us just the you know the resilience and sheer you know commitment and 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 force of uh you know values driven leadership we see on a daily basis in our schools and and so we could have focused on any any number of you know different aspects of what it is to be a, a great employer uh you know as a, as a governing board but the reason i wanted to focus um, our, our conversation on developing staff is because I think I don't think it's controversial to say this. I, we think that's the that's what has ultimately the biggest impact on outcomes for pupils. So I think it will chime with with with, with many of our listeners, all of our listeners, and and a lot of a lot of them I'm sure will be part of governing boards and managing tight budgets. Uh, you know the financial climate is challenging; it remains challenging for some time. And we're all trying to figure out to varying degrees, you know, how to make sure that what we have available to spend on on, on developing our staff delivers a return for our pupils and provides provides the best value. So I guess that's a good, you know, good place to start, really. I'm just wondering, you know, from where you're sitting right now and with all that experience you've just outlined, what wise words do you have for, for our listeners about, you know, establishing a culture of CPD? where they where they govern mandy do you want do you want kicking us off there well volunteered yeah no problem um actually the first thing i think that's really important to say is that you know high spend does not equal high quality cpd um, and i've seen that across so many schools where actually some that can be incredibly prudent and strategic with the way they spend and invest actually get the better outcomes and, and staff report better outcomes. So I think it's really important that we bust that myth that, you know, this is all about spending lots of money because it isn't. It's like anything. It's about spending really wisely, isn't it? And um, I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time with the governance community in schools, whether at individual school level or trust level. And uh, there are some amazingly talented people who actually have brilliant experience themselves. They've worked in different sectors, seen different ways of working. Um, and I think bringing that challenge in a supportive way and understanding the context of schools is actually a really big strength of governance. And so, you know, drawing on your own experience of your own workplaces, I think, can be really powerful. Uh, but you'll have heard me say um, before, Steve, that one of the things that's really lacking in the school sector is, is planning, is planning ahead. Very few trusts or schools have a people strategy, a people plan that goes beyond one academic year. Um, and of course, we do have those things in place uh, when it comes to things like pupil outcomes and progress or when it comes to finance. And yet, as you've said quite rightly, um, that you know, uh, people are the big thing in our sector that are going to deliver the outcomes for children. So we need to get better. And I think 
governing boards can be really powerful in helping make that happen, you know, ensuring that the trust or school has a long term strategy for developing its people and plan that looks beyond an academic year. Um, and beyond that, making sure that actually all the leaders in the school setting are really skilled in having conversations with staff about their CPD and their career. And we might think, you know, that just happens, but it doesn't. Um, and making sure that the systems and the policies that we've got are structured towards that. Um, and we may talk later about things like performance appraisal. Uh, but, you know, I still see performance appraisal very focused on targets um, and not necessarily focused on professional development. And I think making sure that shift is in place in your school can be really, really powerful. So, yeah, in summary, you know, use your own wisdom, experience to ask those challenging questions, support the school to develop a long term people plan and really make sure leaders are skilled in having development conversations with staff in the school would be some starting points for me. Indeed, indeed. Gareth, what, what's your take right now on school CPD culture and strategy, you know, based on what you, you're seeing? First of all, I'd just like to amplify what Mandy just said. I, it really resonates. Um, as a, a PD lead within a, within a large secondary school and a, and a mat, uh, but also across uh, the Oxfordshire County, the feedback we always got when we did uh, staff workforce audits or surveys was particularly from support staff that there wasn't that provision in place. And there always seemed uh, a divide between teaching staff and support staff. So I think having a people strategy, as, as Mandy said, is, is absolutely vital for any school, local authority or multi-academy trust uh, or, or standalone academy. I think it's absolutely essential because the CPD comes from understanding your vision, uh, making sure that you have clear aims uh, over a period of time, as Mandy said, and you understand that how are you going to get there? So you've got that strategic thought. So where where are you going to be in 18 months? Where are you going to be in 12 months or three years? What sort of staff have you currently got? What skills do they have? What are you trying to achieve? And therefore, you can understand the gap. And once you understand the gap from your current position to your strategic um, aims, then you can start to use that professional development in order to fill it. And I think that's essential. I, and I know that Mandy, Mandy wouldn't say this, but if you are looking for guidance, there's some fantastic guidance on the NGA site. But also, I think Mandy's book is terrific. And I know that when I was um, uh, when I was a PD lead, that was really shaped my thinking to ensure that when I was working with the senior leadership team or the governors or the board, that I had a clear picture of what we were trying to achieve. Because ultimately, that's that is fundamental to any professional development. If I can just mention two other things as well, Mandy mentioned the, um, the cost. So if you if you think about staff, all staff in schools, they, they you know, they take 75-80% of the whole school's budget. So of course, it's imperative that how we work with those to improve, regardless of their position within, within the organisation, how we make them better at their role, how they support the strategic aims of the school, the trust or the or, or the organisation, that is, is absolutely key. The final point, I think, is that recognising, if, if you want to embed a culture of effective and impactful CPD, I think you have to accept that you have to give dedicated and allocated time. Too long, there is an assumption that PD for schools workforce should take place after four o'clock at weekends or in the evenings. 
that for me that's that's counterproductive because that's when people are most tired or when they're standing, trying to find time with their family and have a work-life balance so if you're thinking strategically yes of course there's financial costs but and i think mandy and i have got some suggestions about how to how to sort of mitigate some of those but you have to give professional time there's, there's no there's no way an individual can be at their best at 10 o'clock after doing a 10-hour day going home you know supporting their family their kids all their dependencies and then sitting down after they've eaten at 10 o'clock to try and improve how they become a professional yeah i i think you're absolutely right and you know we've we, we've we've long said at nga that you know culture and strategy they're inextricably linked we we know this to be true and the there's a lot that we can do at, at governing level but there is so much to be gained, really, just from having or starting conversations at board level or at a relevant committee level, uh, not just about what the strategy is, you know, what the offer is and the, the resource allocation and, and, and what informs that, but just how it's done as well. Uh, and, and, you know, and the conditions that are being created, as you say, Gareth, for people to to be the best that they can be and, 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 and to flourish. And, and though. And those decisions that are made weren't necessarily made around the governing table, um, but they they should be uh, the robustness of that decision making and the ra- rationale for you know when CPD is offered and how it's offered and and how inclusive it is. Um, I, you know those are those are really important questions. I think we can all ask. And, and I'd like to return to the point about um, about investment. Um, because I think you're right, Mandy. You know, it's not about how much uh, you invest. It's 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 about um, you know the strategy that informs your investment and making the most of of, of what you what you've got. Um, and I just wondered if you've got any advice uh, on what boards should look at um, to ensure themselves that their schools are making the best use of their CPD budget and, and, and getting a return on it and and maybe Gareth this is a good moment uh, to ask you uh, in, in your response to, to talk about the apprenticeship levy which I know this is something you're you know a really strong advocate for and you know uh, keen to promote to the governance community and how the apprenticeship levy can be a real enabler you know of quality CPD in our schools and trusts I, I, I mean I think from my perspective it's fair to say that this is an unexplored area for a lot of us who govern I count myself in that. So um, what should we know and what should we be asking about? Yeah, thank you. I think um, a, a few things really are to sort of qualify any discussions around CPD. One of the one of the challenges that's, that I think we, we face when we're looking at professional development is that it's it's largely unregulated. So I think that, we, that first, when you're looking to invest, you really need to make sure that you've done your research and understand who you're going to employ and how it's going to support your strategic aims. But I think one of the things that it also sits on is that fairness and equality across uh, across the organisation. Over the last few years, we've certainly seen a uh, an offer to the sector that has, that has um, alleviated some of the financial constraints that, and the hardship that, that perhaps schools are facing. So certainly there's the, the apprenticeship levy uh, that was introduced in 2017, and that really is for organisations paying three million or more in their staffing bills. So if, if from 2017, if any organisation uh, in England was, was paying collectively three million or more, then 0.5 of their whole staffing bill 
goes into a digital apprenticeship service account. And that money's ring-fenced for an organisation, so whether that be a local authority if you're a maintained school, or a multi-academy trust if you're an academy, and that can be used and solely used for training, development and assessment. And the reforms that came in in 2017 offered organisations a, a, a range of ways to spend that uh, apprenticeship contribution. So very much in the traditional sense of uh, employing post-16 young people into apprenticeships to learn a trade and earn while, they're, earn while they're learning, but also the opportunity to engage with existing staff to upskill their knowledge, skills and behaviours. And one of the ways the NCEs has, has uh, supported and, and worked with the sector is to provide a range of apprenticeships for exactly that. We offer uh, a, a range for uh, teaching and non-teaching staff, but the levy is, a, is fundamentally a ring-fence pot of money that can be used for PD. It can be used for PD for traditional apprenticeships post-16 or upskilling existing workforce. I think there's a range of, the, the detail around it is, is regulated, is highly regulated through ESFA. Um, there's a, a number of opportunities that schools and trusts can use to, to make sure they're using that effectively. And one of the things that I think they really need to do if they're going to look to work with an apprenticeship provider is ensure that any apprenticeship provider is registered. So you have to be, in order to uh, allow you to use that levy, any apprenticeship provider must be registered. And there is a list and the, the register for approved apprenticeship providers uh, list. Uh, and there's some simple things if, if a governing body is looking to employ uh, a provider. So first of all, ask for recommendations. That's always a really useful way. I think do your due diligence uh, and check the procedures and processes they have in place. Apprenticeship providers must be must be offsteaded, so I think that's a, something that should be on their website. So if it's not, that's probably a, a little bit of a flag. I think also ask them about their customer service, their apprenticeship engagement, and fundamentally their employer engagement, because that money has to be uh, supported and developed through the organisation's engagement. Again, I think it's got to link back to it's got to be linked back to strategic intent and also it can't be used for salaries. So if you're appointing a new apprenticeship, you can't actually pay their salary because that's ring-fenced only for their training, development and assessment. So that's a, that's a broad overview. It's, it, it, there's huge, there's lots more detail around that, but um, I'd, I'd be interested to, to know Mandy's view on, on apprenticeships and, and other fully funded uh, programs that support in talent management. That's really helpful and I think it's really helpful actually that Gareth has explained that so clearly because um, there is still a lot of misunderstanding actually about the apprenticeship levy. There's a lot of people that just don't know about it in our sector or indeed you know see it as something that is about bringing in young apprentices and training them when of course actually a lot of the um, trusts I work with that are using the levy are very much focusing it on upskilling their existing workforce as well as bringing in um, new talent uh, and particularly into skill shortage areas as well. Um, I think one of the reasons why I would hope that we will start to become more focused on this is because we are starting to really face some skill shortages in support staff areas. I'm hearing this a lot from trusts and it's probably no surprise, is it? Because you know, the economy, uh, surprise, surprise, is booming. We've got the biggest labour shortage for 20 years. Um, and also, we've still got the ongoing 
um, concerns about schools and COVID. And, you know, for some more junior staff, they may be making different decisions about where they want to work right now. Therefore, to me, you know, really now taking a much more strategic approach to the levy and investing in your uh, existing staff so that they stay and they're retained and developed, but also actually starting to think about using the levy to bring in a supply um, of talent and train people up. It feels more critical than ever, really. You know, coming back to this point about investment, you know, in a sense, this is invest to save, isn't it? If you can bring in talent, retain people, help them grow in role, uh, I think we have to help schools and trusts see the bigger picture on costs. You know, actually, a small amount of spend on CPD can actually ultimately save you quite a lot when it comes to things like recruitment and turnover of staff. Um, and we have to start looking at it in that uh, in that bigger way, really. And, you know, to come back to this question about how do we get the most out of CPD as well? I, I think really when we invest in CPD for our staff, there's really two core outcomes we expect to see from it one is what impact does it have on pupils Um, and the second is how is it helping us develop the talent in our school and I think if we can really make sure that our CPD planning focuses on testing those two questions you know what impact are we seeing on pupils as a result of this investment Um, and or what impact are we seeing on staff retention, staff growth, the ability to develop people in our school and develop them before they step into new roles. You know, I talk a lot about um, developing people for leadership before they step into leadership because actually stepping into leadership is really, really tough. Um, And we can do that if we've got planning in place. So I think for governing bodies, you know, really keeping an eye on those two outcomes and and is the investment delivering those things for the school or trust? Yeah, absolutely, Mandy. You've touched on something about this being uh, such an important contribution and role that governing boards have in terms of their system leadership. Because, you know, we know, don't we, that, you know, we are facing... Um, if it's a crisis in 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 leadership, in, in if it's not a crisis rather in leadership in in school leadership in the future, then it's something approaching that in terms of uh, you know encouraging people you know with 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 the skills and 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 uh, you know the the talent to to step up into those roles um, you know in the most challenging uh, of of times and and also you know we're we're seeing you know very you know, important uh, leaders who've, who've contributed so much, perhaps making decisions to leave and finish their careers earlier than, than perhaps uh, we, we as boards anticipated they would or, or hoped they would. So we, it, this is part of our contribution assist, to system leadership as well. Gareth, I, I, you were going to come in there. I'm really interested because I in this and, and very much from Andy's point of view because we've I think there's a there's just like a textbook answer for boards it's sort of like you know make sure your talent management hits strategic objectives make sure you've got a vision make sure you it, it, it suits all these things and all the things that mandy and i said i think are crucial but one of the things mandy I, I was reflecting when i was thinking about this session is about drivers for pd so what we've talked about there is an organizational driver as a young teacher my, mo- my, my motivational driver of course was a lot it, it was actually aligned in in the school i was in to the to the organisational drivers. However, as a as a as a young professional who wanted to develop, I think it's really important to acknowledge that recognising and, and identifying talent and giving them a bit of freedom to explore the sector and their passion 
may well mean that you're developing a young leader who will support your strategic aims in future. So I was really, really fortunate to work with an inspirational head in my very first teaching uh, role. And he allowed me to, uh, to, to study a master's. He gave me a little bit of time and also supported me financially through it. Now, I ended up looking at professionalization of, uh, professionalization of teachers and did a master's, did my dissertation on that. And that has, that has really guided my career for the last 20 years. However, if I go back to that moment, I'm not sure if I went to my head teacher at the time and said, I want to study professionalization of teachers. That he, and, and he'd have said, well, actually, it doesn't fit the strategic aims of the organization. Therefore, you can't. I, I think I, I hope I've contributed plenty to the sector. But Mandy, I'd be really interested, before we move on to the, um, to the system drivers, which I think Steve's alluding to, I'd be really interested to get your, your view on that balance between individual sort of developments of drivers and organisation or then link it back to systems. Oh, yeah, it's it's a really, really great point, Gareth, actually, isn't it? It's a really great point. And, you know, I I sometimes think there isn't that big a difference between the two. And the example you've just given is a great one because that's about bringing on young talent. You know, that will help that person want to stay, presumably retained you there at the school, you felt valued. Um, But also then there's that opportunity to explore um, and bring research back into the school Um, and actually uh, we know from some of these studies into uh, teacher CPD that there's not enough that is research focused so um, I think that's a great example of actually you know allowing people to have some ownership and choice can benefit the school and it's got broader benefits actually because um, I was looking at um, some of the work that uh, NFER did I think it was a couple of years ago now looking at teacher autonomy Um, and found actually that teachers have lower autonomy than many other professionals. Um, And there's all sorts of reasons for that, which, you know, are are well documented. Uh, What they also found, though, is that so few teachers had any degree of say over their CPD, you know, little or no say. I think it was something like close to 40% of teachers. And I thought about this because, you know, I've come through a professional route Um, I've worked in big organisations, I've had to agree my CPD, but I would always say I have had a huge influence over my own professional development. Um, So there's something not right there uh, that we have to shift. Uh, Interestingly, though, also what that research found is that um, CPD, having a say, an influence over your CPD would really impact a feeling of general autonomy for teachers. So there's a big win-win here. And this is where it comes back to things like what conversations are we having with staff about their CPD? What kind of appraisals are we running? What kind of professional development conversations, career development conversations are we having? And, and I'd suggest there's a lot of room for improvement there if we've got close to 40% of teachers saying right now, they have little influence over their CPD. It can't all be top down. That's not the way it works. It's got to be collaborative. Yeah, I, I, it, it's so good to hear you say that. Actually, it, one of NGA's central themes for, for this year is, is leadership and the board's role in, in influencing and supporting and developing school leadership, so that it's not only it's possible and sustainable, but we're also making that contribution to the system that I that I mentioned. Uh, it's interesting just how often appraisal has come up in in, in our conversation, um, and you know you're, you're mentioning you know inclusive and and, and participative uh, 
leadership and you know we've been saying it's been a, a, a mantra at NGA for some time now that you know boards should use their the appraisal process for their school leader you know really as a force for good you know model 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 that values driven approach that they want to see throughout their school and trust because they're you know they're they're involved aren't they in the, in the appraisal of their school leader and then you know, they're there to primarily to quality assure the process uh you know that others and the experience that others others have um I do wonder just how embedded that is. Um, I, I, I think probably, regrettably, there's still too many examples of, of a leader appraisal being about um, hard-edged accountability, target set or, uh, you know, tangible target set at the beginning of a period, maybe uh, reviewed midpoint and then performance assessed at the end and not enough space being created throughout the process for for meaningful conversations about development, working conditions, work-life balance, all the things that you know leaders need to be at their best to thrive and uh, and flourish, so that they can model those that approach, uh, you know, throughout throughout the organisation. And and I suppose that brings me on to something that that really interests me um, when it comes to developing leaders, because they we know that they often put the needs of others first. So they don't, you know, they, they think actually uh, their their role is to actually ensure that everyone else is looked after, and really that's all the board needs to know and be assured of. How, how important do you think um, collaboration and, and peer learning, uh, you know, whether it's in the form of coaching, mentoring, peer support, how important do you think that is uh, for for school leaders? And how important do you think it is for governing boards to put that at the, at the forefront of their, you know, their development conversations? Yeah, I, I can I, I jump in there. I think that really interestingly links probably um, the individual driver, the organisational driver, and then the final point, which is perhaps a system driver. Because I think if we're if we're developing leaders, um, part of that part of the responsibility, I think, to support your up and coming, emerging, middle, senior leaders. Is very much to support your organization but also it's a contribution to the wider system and i think that most people who work in the sector accept that they're contributing to something more than their classroom more than their school or their trust it you know it's for society it's for the future generations of society isn't it and the well-being so i think that the idea of how we develop leaders not only to move into positions and talent manage and succession planning with our own or within our own organizations but actually into the wider sector is key and I think that ties really closely into collaboration. Um, again, this is going back to some of the research I did and, and perhaps some of the reading I've done in the, in the past. If you want really, really clear understanding, I think, about how to drive that collaboration and the importance and the benefits it brings, look no further than Andy Hargreaves. You know, collaborative professionalism, I think, is an absolutely amazing read. Uh, that was with Michael Connor uh, back in 2018. And he puts together there a really strong evidence-based reasoning why collaboration, peer, peer support, peer learning is absolutely the heart of system development. So the, the, the 10 development, the, the 10 tenants that they create, and I wrote them down, so I've got them here, but I, I think this is very much what we've already touched on. So Mandy talked about agency, autonomy, efficacy, um, Collaborative inquiry, so not just inquiry within your classroom or your school or your trust, but with the wider, maybe the community, maybe with 
partnership schools in the regional area or nationally or internationally. You know, these are all ways of that iterative improvement, that cycle of improvement that we know is going to work in schools. They've got collective responsibility, initiatives. You know, how do you get away from groupthink? Well, you diversify. And a really clear way to diversify is to reach beyond your organisation. That dialogue, the, the joint work, and he sort of, the last three I think are, are really important. So he talks about having a common meaning and purpose. So that's about understanding what you're trying to achieve, which we've started at the beginning, which is that strategic and uh, strategic age and purpose, but making sure you've got a, a really clear idea of what you're trying to achieve by any collaboration. The second is involving students, which again, you know, if, we, if we're looking to try and get the best outcomes for young people, well, allow them some input into it um, and have a voice within that process. But the last one's everyone understanding the bigger picture. So this is everyone in school. We've talked about the whole school workforce, understanding how their role and their function fits into that school organisation and the system. A school couldn't run without its site manager, couldn't run without its catering staff or its TAs or support staff. So everyone's got to understand that. So I think that, you know, if you want a really clear understanding about how to make collaboration work, collaborative professionalism is great. The other one I'm going to signpost before I pass over to Mandy is the, the um, Inside Out and Upside Down by Steve Mumby and uh, Michael Fullen. A, a, a really clear, strong, positive argument for peer reviews. Uh, I, I think those two those two pieces will set anybody up to understand, have a clear understanding of how to do it and the benefits it can bring. You know, all really good points there, Gareth. And, you know, having had the benefit of working in a really um, large academy trust, um, I've seen firsthand, actually, the huge impact collaboration on CPD can have, whether that's, you know, uh, deepening subject expertise phase, whatever it might be, and and also picking up on the coaching and mentoring, um, because I think that is particularly crucial. And again, at all career stages, um, and really important for leaders, uh, certainly we invested a lot in that, and indeed upskilled our leaders to be great coaches and mentors, so that you're building that capacity uh, across the system to support others. Uh, and for me, I think actually coming back to the leadership question, you know, you talk, Steve, about whether we invest enough really in leaders, are leaders putting themselves second for everybody else? And I think there is something in that. Uh, there's certainly a, a challenge of investing in people as they're stepping into leadership. Uh, becoming a leader for the first time is actually really, really tough because, you know, you, you are no longer directly accountable for what you personally do. You are suddenly accountable for what a group of people do. And that's a different skill set. And I don't think we do enough to prepare people for that in schools we don't see it as a structured pathway in the way that we do teaching for example you know we would never throw somebody in a classroom and expect them to just get on with it but we often throw people into leadership and uh, and I say that as an HR professional because sadly we often see uh, the sticky end of that when it all goes horribly wrong uh, and so many times we say you know what if there'd been some investment in that person's development this wouldn't be here um and could I say something about appraisal as well, actually? Do, yeah, That's okay, because yeah. this does play into this. Because, you know, I think one of the sad things in our sector was when appraisal became all about pay. 
Um, and, you know, those of us that have worked in other sectors that <laughs> saw that being ditched many years ago because of the impact of it, you know, once appraisal becomes about where you are on the pay grade, it's a very different conversation. It's a tick box. It's about meeting targets. Um, you know, it's not about growth development. And uh, we need to move away from that if we really want to start having good quality conversations. I am pleased to see that many trusts and many schools are starting to do that. And starting to go right back to basics and saying, actually, we want our appraisal to be more continuous. It's not once a year or twice a year. It's an ongoing conversation. We want it to be about somebody's professional development and growth. We're linking it to coaching uh, as part of that or mentoring depending what's appropriate. Um, And, you know, we're also going to make sure that it's very, very career focused as well, if that's appropriate. We're having good quality career conversations with people through that process Um, and are seeing that it's becoming a great tool for school improvement, but also, quite frankly, staff are engaging in it and enjoying it Um, rather than groaning about it being that great big bureaucracy and all the paperwork. And, you know, my first question to a trust is, let's have a look at just how impactful your current process is on pay progression overall. And usually it isn't. It's an awful lot of time and energy for not a lot of gain. So let's rethink this and actually make it a process that's about professional development and, you know, delivering for pupils ultimately. Mandy, can I, can I just ask, sorry, one, of the, one of the things that I was going to just, one of the things I was, I was considering as you were talking was a little bit around some of the really um, forward-thinking schools and trusts and about how they've managed that. So as, as a governor, I think everything you've said would make sense. How do they implement that on a sort of within an organisation? And so I know that schools, some schools and trusts in the past have, have sort of said, okay, well, the pay, let's separate that out, as you said, mm-hmm. and manage that pay progression. Then it's like, well, what are we going to do? Because we've always said it's linked to that. So some schools have, have said, well, actually, you will automatically go up through, through the pay progression, provided you're not on competency or you've had a cause for concern. If you are, then it's right that there's perhaps some further thinking around it. So that immediately alleviates what we all know as, as, as teachers have been. It's like, oh, it's the appraisal. It's my performance management. I've got to do everything I can to make sure that I tick all the boxes to get the pay progression. So by doing that, everything Mandy's just said works. And it, I've seen it in practice. So some schools have, have, have said that automatically goes through. Other schools I've seen saying, well, actually, every other year, so every two years, there is a sort of a, a review on how you're progressing and engaging with professional development and provided everything seems satisfactory and you're, and you're making steady improvement and actually you get two years pay progression and then the review again. A couple of suggestions there for, for governing bodies, I think. Mandy, have you, have you seen things like that becoming more common? Because I know that was certainly the, the, the sort of trajectory that I saw. Yeah, definitely, Gareth. I mean, there's still, you know, we still need to see more of that. But you're right, those are two great tips there. I, I've seen, particularly for teachers on the main pay scale, a lot of trusts are saying, look, you're just going to progress unless there's an issue that's recorded. Because what they were seeing through their data is that most people were progressing anyway, despite this huge uh, bureaucratic process. So, you know, what they're perhaps often focused on is then, you know, it's when you get towards the upper pay scale where we might have some more rigour, we might have bigger expectations about what you're demonstrating. Um, Or as you said, maybe, you know, looking at an alternative process that runs alongside performance management, but is separate to it. Um, I am seeing more and more of that, particularly in trusts, actually. Um, But there's still a lot more to do. 
Uh, there are a few trusts really leading the way on that. But when I speak to uh, teachers and, and middle leaders uh, on generic programmes, I'm still hearing a lot of people saying, actually, no, my appraisal is still very pay and target focused. So I think we have got some work to do. And I agree with you. I think governors are in a great position to ask those questions about this and you know, really challenge that process because I think some schools um, and trusts think it has to be that way. You know, it has to be all about pay. There's a few myths to bust there, and it actually doesn't. Um, and you know, asking those questions can help open up that debate. Indeed, and it's it's really how we influence the culture, and that at board level, it's often it, it it's understandable to sort of assume that because these are you know operational matters or more more operational than 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 governance. Uh, or to see them that way, that we can't influence uh, or be influential, but actually it, it is in our hands. Those of us who govern, we can, you know, we we get the great thing and a huge privilege about being in this role is we get to we get to have that influence and we get to decide uh, whether or not our schools or trusts are great places to work. What a wonderful opportunity, really, and it's why I've, I've been actually looking forward so much to to having this conversation with you both. And, it, and it, it's been all I hoped it would be. Uh, you, you've given great insight and, and some recommended reading to boot as, as well. And, be, and before we finish, I, I'm going to embarrass Mandy further by by endorsing Gareth's recommendation of, of her book, Talent, Talent Architecture. It's certainly uh, been essential reading for me in recent months as we've been thinking about this topic at NGA. And it's made me think differently about the, the conversations I have with, with the schools I'm privileged to support as a governor and a trustee, but also the schools I'm, I'm privileged to support in, in this role. So uh, those, those listening, I definitely recommend that uh, you, you read uh, Man, Mandy's book and, and check out the other reading uh, that's been mentioned. So perhaps a, a, a good way to finish, because we, we started our conversation uh, didn't we by acknowledging that you know that, that people are our most valuable resource do you have any advice for chairs who are, who are reflecting on that having listened to our conversation mandy yeah uh, i think the first thing to recognize is that talent talent management um isn't about just a few select people you know everybody in your school or trust has talents has the ability to develop, grow, whether they want to do that um, in terms of developing their career or actually whether they want to stay in the role they're doing, but develop over time. Um, So really being clear, this is about getting the best from everybody working in that environment. At the same time, there will be some quite business critical roles as well. So, you know, you may have some particular shortages you're facing or that are, that are up and coming, um, some labour market challenges, some key people that if you lost them, it would be a huge impact. So there does also need to be that real focus on those potential skill shortages uh, and they may need some extra attention as well as developing everybody. So I think approaching it with that broad view on, on what talent management talent strategy is about Um, and you know as I said at the outset seeing that as part of your wider people strategy uh, and I think you know the chair has that ability to come in and be really strategic in this and to absolutely see this as a school improvement issue you know this isn't an aside that we do when we've got a bit of time or something that we do when the school finally gets to good or outstanding or whatever it is we're trying to achieve. Developing in your people 
is the thing that is going to make you a great school. It is the thing that is going to deliver for your pupils. So approaching it in that this is a school improvement issue, how, getting it on the agenda in that way, I think is absolutely vital. And, and again, I think, you know, hopefully your leader also believes that and will engage in that. But I think the chair can be really powerful in starting to shift the lens on on what this is actually about. Indeed. Gareth, final word. Uh, I think Amanda's absolutely nailed it. The, only, yeah, the, 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 the one point I would add is just, you know, building in that EDI, equality, diversity, inclusion. Amanda's mentioned it. It's so key to ensure that we have a, a proposition for our employees that is, that is inclusive, that is diverse, that has that equity, um, I, I think is absolutely central to anything that uh, any chair is going to deliver. Of course, don't forget about your pension levy. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, uh, both of you. Um, it's, it's been wonderful. Um, and, and let's do it again, shall we? I, I think we've, we've just scratched the surface with CPD, but there's so many other, uh, you know, areas uh, and, and aspects of being a great employer that, that I, I know our, our listeners uh, to NGA podcasts are so interested in. So it'd be lovely to get you back and, and have another conversation sometime in the future. But for now, thank you both. And thanks to everyone uh, for listening. And I look forward to joining you again in the near future. Thanks a lot. Bye.